0: morning, and welcome to Abundant Life on this first day of spring. Spring began at like 9 o'clock last night. So today, the entire planet has 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of dark. So welcome to Abundant Life, especially to those at our uh, Sandy campus, those are watching online, and a special welcome to those at our Vancouver campus who are celebrating the grand opening of being in their new building. So can you give them a shout-out and you know, just let them know that... We rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Vancouver today. As Dave mentioned, today I'm wrapping up a series on relationships that we've called I Give Up. And the theme of this series is the verse in Ephesians 5.21. It's in your life notes. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pastor Mike began this series by looking at marriage, especially from Ephesians 5. And then last week, Pastor Robbie spoke on parents and children from Ephesians 6. But as we wrap up today, I want to forget about people for a moment and focus on something bigger. That is our relationship with God, because the most important relationship that we can have is with God. See, marriage is the most important of all human relationships. But your relationship with God is even more critical than a marriage relationship, because a relationship with God is everlasting. Jesus taught that there's no marriage and no sex in heaven. And first time I heard that, I thought, What? It took me a, real, a while to realize why. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, marriage, as awesome as it can be, and it's called a gift in the New Testament, as awesome as it can be is not the ultimate relationship. Is a picture of a deeper and more profound closeness, one that we will experience with God in heaven. See, we won't need marriage in heaven because we're going to exist in the presence of perfect love, in person. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And at the end of the day, I'm also convinced that marriage problems aren't really marriage problems. Uh, I'm convinced that if people, two people are right with God, they're going to be right with each other. Now that doesn't—that's also true of any relationship, really, including parents and children or, or any other relationship. Because our marriage problems are not marriage problems; our relational problems are not relationship problems. They are God problems. They're heart problems. And our lack of connection with God looks us to try looks for us to fill that void with substitutes. Because it's possible. To make marriage an idol or your children an idol, any relationship an idol. The most common reason for marriages and all relationships to be broken is because of selfishness. I'm not even sure if there's a second reason. But see, we cannot cure our narcissism by focusing on ourselves. Instead, the solution is to focus on God. God. And Jesus is the ultimate example of what relationship with God looks like because here was someone who is totally and completely submitted to the will of God. And the clearest example of Jesus in his submission to God is found in the cross. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And when Jesus is talking about cup, he has, that's a reference to the cross. It wasn't his preference to go through the cross. That's not what he, want, he wanted to do, but he was submissive to the will of God. And so we're going to focus a little bit today on the cross, because that's a clear, the clearest demonstration of Jesus being submissive, submissive to God. And there's no way to make a crucifixion attractive. Today we wear crosses as necklaces and jewelry and I'm pretty sure that people in the first century would have a really hard time wrapping their brains around that, because it'd be the equivalent of us wearing little electric chairs around our necks. Because the cross was a symbol of death, agonizing, humiliating, painful death. There is a difference between a crucifixion and an execution. It's a difference between one being public versus one being more private. One is slow, the other tends to be swift. And because this is the beginning of Passion Week and Palm Sunday, as we prepare for Easter, I want to take a look at what the Bible calls the central event in human history. For special consideration, I want to take a look at three of the sayings of Jesus on the cross and their implications for us. So words from the cross. Jesus, there are at least seven instances of Jesus speaking from the cross. I'm going to look at three of them. And the Bible is understated when it just says, they crucified him. It doesn't really specify what that entails. The Latin word for cross is cruce. The word excruciate gives you an idea of what the cross is all about. The ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament in your knee is in the shape of a cross. And I've had ACL surgery and I can speak from experience. It's excruciating. Crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians several hundred years before Jesus ever made his entrance onto the scene in Israel. The Phoenicians worshipped the God of the earth, and they didn't think it right that a criminal would defile the earth that they revered, and so they came up with this ingenious method of execution. The Romans then perfected it into a science. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus was offered a drink. It was wine mixed with gall, and it was meant to be a mild anesthetic They would help calm the victim down before what would happen next. And Jesus refused the anesthetic, the the mild painkiller. The Roman guards would take iron spikes about nine inches long. And they wouldn't drive the spike through a hand because the hand cannot support the weight of a human body on a cross. Instead, they'd feel for the indentation between the two bones in the wrist. Now, one reason why we're confused about that is because Jesus tells his disciples after the resurrection see my hands, but according to Jewish anatomy, the wrist was a part of the hand. and so. But the Roman soldiers would be careful to find that indentation in the wrist, making sure they didn't puncture an artery, because that way the victim would then bleed to death and die much more quickly than they intended, and then they would drive that iron spike into the wood of the cross. Then the feet would be placed on top of each other, the knees bent, and when a third spike was driven through the flesh and into the wound, and it's important... For the knees to be bent because it's not possible to breathe while hanging on a cross. The pressure on the pectoral muscles of the chest is so great they begin to spasm and the victim suffocates very quickly. So, as a result, the Romans perfected this method of having the knees bent so that way a person on a cross could actually <clears throat> leverage themselves and hoist up to grab a breath and then slump back down. So, a person on a cross was pretty much in constant motion, going up and down, trying to gasp breaths of air. Klausner, a Jewish historian, says that crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death humanity has ever devised. The victim was nailed to a cross while it was on the ground, and then the cross was hoisted up and dropped into a pre-dug hole. Psalm 22, I encourage you to read that this coming week for Passion Week. Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years ago before crucifixion was even invented. And yet, it describes in prophetic detail what Jesus experienced in the cross. One of the verses of Psalm 22 says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. And that's what would have happened when that cross got hoisted up and placed into that hole. The other gospel writers then mention how Jesus was mocked on the cross. He saved others, let him save himself. Let him come down now from the cross And then we'll believe in him. And so the first words of Jesus that I want to focus on is this. It is the word forgive. This response is amazing. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, who's Jesus talking to here? Well, those closest with an earshot are the crucifixion party, the execution party, the Roman soldiers, but they're also the teachers and the chief priests, the ones mocking him the ones who are most responsible for him being there on the cross. And Jesus intercedes to the Father on their behalf. Do not hold this against them. And he says, they don't know what they're doing, and he's exactly right. Because of their lack of faith, they're oblivious to the cosmic drama that's unfolding before their very eyes. And the wonder of this word from the cross is that there is forgiveness. Well, the second saying of Jesus from the cross I want to look at is, Why? And that's a valid, legitimate question. Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's the meaning of that? I believe that at that awesome moment in history, God placed the entire sin of the human race on Jesus. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when God placed all of our sin on Jesus, the earth went dark. And for the first time in his life, Jesus couldn't perceive fellowship with the Father. And I'm convinced this was the most painful part of the cross for Jesus. Physical pain is bad enough But I can tell you from experience, emotional pain is far worse. And this is the emotional pain that Jesus went through. Our sin blinded Jesus so that he couldn't see the Father with whom he shared fellowship for all eternity. Sin blinded him to the point where he felt as if God had forsaken him. And the fact that Jesus felt abandoned only shows you to the degree that he experienced our sin. For a moment in eternity, the Son knew it was like not to have connection with the Father. For all of his earthly life and ministry, his eye was his eyes were focused plainly, clearly on God. And I think his perception was so blinded that he could have even lost sight of the purpose of the cross. So utterly dark in the depth of his blindness that did sin create in him and his experience. See, this is a mystery far deeper than what the scripture itself says. But see, in allowing sin to touch the Godhead, it caused a rift in the divine community between father and son. But the story doesn't end there. For three hours, the earth was dark, and then Jesus said, I thirst. Now before, he turned down the offer of a painkiller, but now he takes a drink. And the reason is because his throat's parched, his body is dehydrated, he's on the verge of death, but he has something he wants the world to hear. And his third saying from the cross is this, that I want to look at, paid in full. John 19, verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And he said it with a loud voice, a voice of triumph and of victory. Because you see, the word paid in full in the Greek means it "is finished. The words are the same. When Jesus said, it is finished. He was, he was using an account, a term from bookkeeping, from accounting, it's what the word redemption really means. It's a, that's a 25-cent theological word that means to buy back. It's like from a pawn shop. And so I want to unpack that for a moment and look at a passage in the New Testament, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, that tells us in detail what the cross means for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your, your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And this text speaks of a record of charges against us. It's kind of like an arrest warrant. And the picture I get is that I have a file against me This file lists everything that I have ever done wrong. And there are many pages in my file. My file is very large. In fact, if you saw my file, you wouldn't listen to me. Now, don't get self-righteous, because if I saw your file, I probably wouldn't talk to you. (laughs) There are many pages in my file. And these pages list all the sins that I've committed. And on the last page of my file, it says, because of these charges, this file of sins, Greg Stranigan is sentenced to death, which is eternal separation from God. See, this record of charges is a testimony of how I've fallen short. Now, the good news is that God loves me anyway. He loves me so much that he canceled that arrest warrant, that file against me, that record of charges. Circle that phrase, he forgave all our sins. See, how's that possible? We do our bookkeeping at the end of the year, but see, God is omniscient. He can see the future, and so he can do his bookkeeping in advance. He, does, he doesn't put 186,000 sins worth of forgiveness into my account and then say, "Lo, oh, I didn't see that sin coming. I guess I'll have to die again. No, he took care of it all. The entire sin of the human race, you, me, everybody who's ever lived or ever will live, past, present, future, it was all placed on Jesus at the cross. All means all, he took care of our sin problem once and for all. And the picture I get is he took every page in my file and when I receive that offer of forgiveness, when I surrender my life to him, he takes a stamp and dips it in his blood and he marks canceled. On page one, he does that on page two. Every page in my file, In his blood, he takes a stamp, and stamp's canceled. But see, there's still a problem. Because of this canceled record of charges, it's a little bit like toxic waste. How do you deal with toxic waste? How do you get rid of it? The enemy would love to have access to my file, to hold it against me. And so to ensure that my file wouldn't get hacked by the enemy, God did something radical. He took took that file... And he nailed it to the cross, is what this text says. And what he is saying there is, if anybody wants to see Greg Stranigan's canceled file, let him pass over my dead body. And that took care of that. See, because of the cross, God forgives. He forgives it all. He took care of it all. He has a standing offer of forgiveness through the cross. And that's the most incredible feeling ever, that sense of being made clean and pure. There's nothing like it. But see, that's just the beginning. Not only did he forgive all our sins, number two, because the cross, God gives us a new identity. The Colossians passage says God made you alive with Christ. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the dead to new life. And when we accept his offer of forgiveness, we get brand spanking new lives as well. Verse 13 says, you were dead because of your sins. Now, that's how we were, just like everybody else. A person without Christ is dead in their sins. But we've been made alive with Christ. It's kind of like a few living people now walking around a bunch of corpses. It's, the imagery is like a theological zombie movie. You know, the difference between a follower of Jesus and one who doesn't is not a follower of Jesus is more moral. That's not the difference. It's the difference between being alive and being dead. And if you think about it, what good would it be if we had all of our sins forgiven and we go back to the same broken, dysfunctional life? No, God makes us a new creature, a new person. And the cross also says that your worth is inherent. It comes from who you are. You are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. God says, I love you so much, I gave my life for you. You belong to me. So let's talk about what it means to submit to God. Because that's what Jesus has done to make that possible. And our flesh doesn't like that word, submit. It grates against us. Now, we come by that honestly, because if you think about it, that's the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve decide to live independently from God. But the paradox of of the cross is that submitting leads to victory. I'd said that because of the cross, God wins, Check this out. The way the message version puts out, verse, puts for, verse 15, excuse me, it says, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority. And at the cross, he marched them naked through the streets. The spiritual tyrants of sin and guilt and death. Jesus strips them of their sham authority. He marches them naked through the streets. At the cross, the table is turned on the enemies of God. And the last enemy is death. And the word picture here is, is of a Roman triumphal victory parade. Marching it through the streets, people cheering, confetti flying, the enemies of God being marched naked through the streets. God put his enemies to shame. Now, normally in a Hollywood movie, death is seen as defeat. But Jesus had a voice of triumph when he emphatically said, It is finished, pay in full. See, we live in a world of disharmony and discord. It was the ninth hour when Jesus said, It is finished. It was the ninth hour when he said, Behold, I make all things new. It's God who gives us the cross, and it's the cross that gives us God. Among the victims of the French Revolution was a bishop who knew of the love of God in Christ. He'd been sentenced to prison, was awaiting execution, and he had one tiny window in his dungeon that admitted light, and it's in the form of a cross. And after the bishop's execution, they found written on the top of the window, height, on the bottom of the window, depth on either side of, the, of that cross, length and breadth. He died knowing that in the cross of Christ, we enter into the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God. So, let's talk about why surrender. I love this definition of surrender. It means to cease resistance to an enemy or an opponent and submit to their authority, to abandon oneself entirely. And as I mentioned, that's the key to victory. If you think about it, God is so awesome that he actually uses obstacles to accomplish his purposes. How are you gonna win against a God like that? You might as well surrender. And step number three of the 12 steps says, surrender your will to God. That's my favorite definition of repentance because I think it's the clearest one. Because before I was running the show of my life, I was in charge, self was in control. Surrender means I surrender my will to God. And now he takes control. That's why I have a new nature with new behaviors. Jesus put it this way in Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Underline that word anyone, because this is not extra credit, upper level, AP Christianity. This is for anyone. If you want to follow Jesus, this is what it looks like. And Jesus says first to anyone who wants to follow, deny yourself. Now, the world bombards you with the opposite message of power and control and independence. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Jesus tells you just the opposite. Deny yourself. And then he says this, take up your cross. And In the first century, everyone knew what that meant. When you saw someone carrying a cross, there's one thing that waited in store for them, death. Jesus is calling us to die to self. Now, the problem here is, and I'm sure you can re- relate to this, is myself self doesn't want to stay dead. You know, like a cheap horror movie, it keeps coming back to life. And so that's why Jesus has to say, take up your cross daily. It's not just a one-time surrender. I have to do that on a constant basis. One young man was discouraged because he wasn't experiencing victory over sin in his life. and He met with an older, wiser gentleman who had followed Jesus for many years. And he asked this older gentleman, and he said, Why, if my old self is crucified with Christ, do I keep having such struggles with sin? The old gentleman just smiled and he said, My son, you must understand that crucifixion is a slow death. But see, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is of supreme value that we would sacrifice everything to follow him. So what does it look like to submit to God? First is this. It means obey God. That's definitional to submission. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. The word Lord means maximum authority, See, it is an oxymoron to say Jesus is Lord and then turn around and say, well, I can go ahead and sin. God will forgive me. His grace will cover it. The book of 1 John says, if we have no sin, if we say we, say, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us and we deceive ourselves. See, it's not about trying to be perfect or pretending that we're perfect. But then 1 John turns around and says, my children do not sin. So I get a little it's like. Okay, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves, but do not sin. But see, when he says, my children do not sin, that means do not continue in sin. Do not walk in sin. That's the difference. We all stumble and fail, but the point is, don't live in it. Make your trajectory to obey God and not self. Jesus was very clear when he said the hallmark of being in the kingdom of God is to do the will of God. Obedience and submission are important, but they're not the most important thing. This is ascending in terms of value and priority. Obey God. Number two is love God. Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And see, I grew up in church, and part of the problem of the church upbringing that I was raised in is pretty legalistic because, it see, it focused on behaviors, Following Jesus is way more than behavior modification because that just leads to rules and regulations. It leads to legalism. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. In other words, if you're having trouble with your, with your obedience, work on your love relationship with Jesus. The obedience then follows way more naturally. So a couple of final thoughts. The cross shows us our need for Grace. King Frederick II was an 18th-century monarch of Prussia. On one occasion, he was visiting a a prison in Berlin, and the inmates were all there trying to prove to him how they had been unjustly imprisoned, all except for one who sat by himself in a corner while the rest protested their innocence. Seeing him sitting there, the king went over to this solitary figure and asked what he was there for. Armed robbery, Your Honor, he said. The king asked, were you guilty? He answered, yes, sir. I entirely deserve my punishment. Immediately, the king ordered the guard, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent prisoners. (laughs) See, the one who admitted received grace. That's the way it is with us. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. See, the the cross is testimony that none of us are innocent. We're all guilty. We've all sinned. The cross reminds us that we have a sin problem, and we need the grace of God that he provides. There's a song out now that uh, Danny Gokey sings called Tell Your Heart to Beat Again, and it was written by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And Randy Phillips explains the song is a good song, but the story behind it is remarkable. Randy Phillips tells the story, the backstory. He says that a pastor uh, talked one of his church members, who's a surgeon, into being allowed in the operating room of a woman who's having open heart surgery. So this pastor's staying in the corner, and they bring the person in, and he witnessed the doctor sawing open her chest and opening the chest cavity. The surgeon then extracted her heart and began to do treatment on her heart and repair her heart. He then put the heart back in the chest cavity and gently massaged it. But the heart didn't start on its own. So he massaged the heart again. And still nothing happened. And it began to dawn on the pastor, I'm about to see this doctor lose his patient. They did more extreme treatment on the heart and still no response. Finally, the surgeon did something extraordinary. He took off his surgeon's mask. He knelt down beside the patient and he spoke into her ear. He said, Miss Johnson, this is your surgeon speaking. The operation went perfectly. Your heart has been repaired, but you've got to tell it to beat again. And with that, the heart began to beat. See, every person in this room has had their heart wounded and broken. And we come to the cross to get our hearts fixed. That's part of the deal. God gives us a new heart, Not just that he forgives our sins, that's awesome, but he gives us a new heart with a new nature. And sometimes it takes the great physician to say, hope again, love again, to tell your heart to start beating. That's where it begins, is at the cross. See, God's desire is for us to live in his love. That's what he wants. He pursues us with an undying love. And he has a standing offer for us to come to the cross, But still, we have a choice to make in that offer. And when we accept it, that's when the kingdom of God begins in our lives, in our hearts. I want to close with a salvation prayer. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, you can do that right now and begin the restoration of your heart. I'm going to ask that you pray alongside me. And if you have prayed this prayer, would you also pray out loud to support those who might be praying this prayer for the first time. We pray, God, I admit that I need your grace. Thank you for the cross. I surrender my will to you. Thank you for forgiveness. Give me a new heart. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you let us know by indicating on a connection card And then putting that in the offering bucket as it's passed by. In a couple of moments, we're going to participate in communion together. But there's one more takeaway that I want us to look at. That is the cross shows us our unconditional love of God. The cross shows us the unconditional love of God. See, the cross is ultimately about love. The Bible says that God is love. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. Because I know how it works in my life. You know, my circumstances don't always go swimmingly. I've heard it called daisy Petal Christianity, as in, I got a raise, he loves me, I lost my job, he loves me not. Something which I prayed for actually happened, he loves me, my anger got the best of me today, he loves me not. A friend encouraged me today, he loves me, my car needs a new transmission, he loves me not. See, circumstances in our life come and go, some are good, some are bad, But if we define the love of God in terms of our limited circumstances, we're never going to experience the depth of love that God has for us. See, the love of God is the most powerful force in the universe. And when that love touches you, it's more powerful than your failures. It's more powerful than your sins, your disappointments, your fears, and your circumstances. See, the cross isn't about religion. Religion says, you're bad, God is good, try harder. The problem with religion is you're trying to earn favor with someone who's not keeping score. God doesn't want your obedience, he wants your affection. He wants your heart, because he understands that you can obey God without loving him, but if you love him, he's gonna have your obedience as well. See, righteousness doesn't produce relationship. Relationship produces righteousness. See, God isn't interested so much in your service, your sacrifice. This is what he wants. He wants you to know how much you are loved and that you'll love him in return. That is the bottom line of bottom lines. To know how much he loves you and that you would love him in return. Understand that and everything else in your life will fall into place. But if you miss that, nothing else will matter. Discovering how much God loves you will revolutionize your life. It's the key to a healthy relationship with a father who loves you unconditionally. It's what gives us security. It's what gives us healthy identity. See, for years, I was pretty uncertain how the creator of the universe thought about me. I knew in my head, the Bible says God is love, but I felt in my heart, I was probably a disappointment to him. But see, the standing offer of the cross is the unconditional love of God. It doesn't do us any good, though, unless we receive it, unless we integrate it into our lives. The door is open. All we have to do is trust him enough to walk through it. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I shared previously about the accident where uh, our family was hit by a logging truck, and my wife and I were seriously injured, and we, we lost a four and a half year old son in that accident. And while I was in a hospital bed, I got a card from a pastor friend of mine, and all the card said was, God knows what it's like to lose a son. And it was like I had an epiphany at that moment. It put everything into such clarity and such reality. Because see, God doesn't approve of sin and suffering. And he doesn't approve so much that he did something as radical as sending his son Jesus to die on a cross and begin the process of making all things right. God has brought us out of death. and has made us alive with Christ. He has given us new hearts. So as we come to the table, this is what we're going to do today, a little bit differently. We have the elements, two remarkable symbols, the bread and the cup, that represent the body of Jesus, his life that was given for us, and the cup represents his blood that was shed, because the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, because the life is in the blood. A life had to be paid, and it was out of love. And so I'm going to ask that you come. We have three stations up front, two in the back, and when you're ready to come, And serve yourself the elements and participate in a standing offer of God's unconditional love. God, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, for the cross that gives us such clarity as to your purposes. Let us experience not only your forgiveness, but new hearts and new lives. We thank you for the cross in Jesus' name.